This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, Redeemer. Today's scripture is Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20, page 810 on the Pew Bibles, page 810, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Well, good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to be with you all this morning. I'm going to pull this out because is anybody else's allergies like terrible this week? I feel like I got hit by a freight train. Um, So we'll see how much I use that. Um, Hey, before I jump in, uh, I want to point this out to you. You guys got this on the way in. It's for uh, our DNA class. Our DNA class is, you know, exactly how it sounds, to share with you the DNA of our church. If you're uh, if you're here and you're asking, like, what are we about? What do we do? Like, what, are we, what do we value and what do we believe as a church? And what's it look like for you to lock arms with us? Not just uh, being around the things that we're doing, but actually locking arms to help us advance what we're doing. Uh, that's called membership here. And this is our membership class. We would love to invite you to come and attend this. Uh, it'll be two uh, Sunday nights in a row. It says here on the card that it's the 9th and 16th. Uh, But last week, we announced that our member meeting is going to be next Sunday night on the 9th. So it'll actually be on the 16th and 23rd. So man, if you're interested in learning more about our church and what it looks like for you to participate in that, come to our membership class on the 16th and 23rd. Sign up online to be a part of that. We would love to have you there. We would love to have you there. And then view next week's member meeting as maybe your intro into membership. Uh, so maybe it's a three-week class. Join us next week for our membership or our member meeting at 6:30, and then join us the following two weeks for DNA. All right. So with that out of the way, and with about ten sermons worth of text in front of us, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll we'll jump in. <clears throat> Jesus, you are good, just like we sang a second ago. 
you are good, which isn't to say you just do good things. Certainly you do. But goodness is in your nature. You are good in your nature, which means you have the ability, you alone have the ability to discern good things, like profitable things, beautiful things from those that aren't. And we've just spent three weeks walking through beautiful things that you've laid out before us, things that you value, things that you love. And God, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you would sink them in our hearts. Before we move on to all the nooks and crannies of what that means for our lives, um, my hope, my intention, my goal for this morning is that you would put them in our guts. Like you would take these values and make them what we yearn for, what we long for, that we would see them intrinsically valuable. So God, would you give us that gift this morning? We can't do that on our own. That is a, that, like that's a big ask. That's a, that's a God kind of ask. So God, would you do that? Would you do that by your word? Would you do that by your spirit? Um, would you do that through my weak and um, frail words? We pray in your name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so the way I wanna get into this text this morning is just by simply asking you a pretty simple question. Uh, what's your picture of success for your life? Like, have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, what, what is the picture you hold up as success for you? What's your picture of what success looks like for you? Like, think of someone that you consider successful. Like, what attributes do they have? What qualities make up who they are? What makes them great in your mind? Man, this is exactly what Jesus has been doing in his Beatitudes. He's been outlining the things that he believes are great. That's what we've been walking through for the last three weeks. The Beatitudes are this picture of the kind of person that Jesus imagines as great in his kingdom community. He's outlined it for you. He's put words to it. He's put descriptors to it. You can see it. You can walk through it. And Jesus lays out this value system of his kingdom and says those who live in this value of being poor in spirit and being meek and being a peacemaker and all these different things that he outlines for us, they're great. That is a successful person. And if you're like me, week in and week out, I've been sitting right over here. And as we've come to a close, each and every sermon, I've, I've had this like, this like yearning in me. Like I, and I have, I've had this like yearning at the end of each of the sermons, like, I want that. <laughs> Like, I want my life to be characterized by that. I want God to line me up to that. I want, my, I want my pursuits to be after that. I want my wife to be pursuing that. I want my family and my household and my kids to be characterized by that. I want our church to value these things. Like, I want us to be about this as a church. I want all of these things. But here's the thing. As I've come up to this text this week, it like occurred to me, <laughs> Here, here's the thing. Each of us already have been handed a picture of success. We've already been handed one. Like long before we read this text a couple of weeks ago, we've all been handed a picture of what success looks like in our world. So Jesus has painted this picture of greatness in his kingdom, and we've all got already a competing picture. We've already got a competing picture in our hearts and in our minds of what a successful life looks like, and it's gonna create a problem. Like it's gonna create a clash. Like there's gonna be some rubbing here, right? Like let's just take one example. We could, we could go through all of them. Let's go after one. I want to be meek. Like I, I really want to be meek. Like Ron outlined for us what meekness is. Meekness is this, this desire and willingness and disposition to trust God as you move toward the needs of others. That you move towards one another in service, using your strengths and your abilities to minister and bless and serve those around you while trusting God alone to meet your own needs, to take care of your own lot. That's what meekness is all about. It's an unbelievable strength and it sounds good. It sounds noble. It's the kind of thing that I could look around, 
you know, in our church community and find a need and maybe I could look at needs in my neighborhood. I could move toward them and I could give away and give some money, give some possessions. So I can meet an actual need right now today and be meek. And it's great. You could do that. But what happens with meekness when you're in the middle of a dry spell in your marriage? Like there's been years of disappointment, like you're hurt, they're hurt, communication is broken down. You can't see how on, how on earth this is ever gonna get better. Like you've been at it for a while now and it just, nothing seems to be working. You're deeply discouraged. You can't remember the last time you were happy. What does meekness look like there? Like what does meekness actually look like in these tough spots? It might look like moving towards your spouse as you work through these difficulties and maybe you go through some counseling, maybe you go through like this and maybe you kind of like ramp yourself up going, man, we're gonna give this a go. We're gonna give this a try. We're gonna try to work through all of this stuff, right? In hopes that things are gonna get better. I mean, if we can just work this out and get past this, then like things are taking a dip for now, but eventually if we stay at it, things will trend upwards. Things will get back up and to the right. And then we can get back on with the things of getting our careers in place and having our kids and having our house and getting in the right place and right neighborhood and being happy again on the other end. Like certainly if I invest now, then maybe that'll pay off in the other end, Right? But what if things actually don't get better? What if things don't get better? What if it stays the same? How does that line up with your picture of success? What do you do with meekness there? See, we can start off well-intentioned, trying to be meek, but unless it's in our guts, like unless it's actually something we believe that Jesus pictures for us as better, unless his beatitudes are something that we internally believe is better for us, then we're going to give in. We're gonna tap out. We're gonna hit the eject button and buy into the world's picture of success when things get hard. Like that's just how we'll, we'll, we'll move, right? Like we need to name out loud that the beatitudes are not this recipe for a picture of success that's been handed to you. Like think of being a peacemaker, like when you're faced with a decision about whether to defend yourself against somebody like lobbying accusations at you, like success in that moment is telling you, make your voice heard. Like defend yourself or point out all the inconsistencies that they have in their life. What does Jesus say? Take the log out of your eye. <laughs> it's like, no, like it sounds great here, as even as I'm saying, it sounds noble, but in the heat of the moment, that is not what you wanna hear. You do not want to do that. It is hard to do that. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A picture of success handed to us here looks like focusing on your efforts and airing all your beliefs and all the things that you think are broken out there, right? What's Jesus say? Jesus would have us first take a look at the hidden sin and the lusts within you like to address the darkness in your own hearts before you go out judging other people. But we don't do that. Like that is so opposite from the picture and the ways that you live. Poor in spirit, the picture handed to us here is to be strong and not show weakness. Or if we are gonna be vulnerable, like do it so you can get what you want. What's Jesus say? He says, go into a closet, shut the door and pray right? And God sees what's in secret. That's how he would have us act. And we can say that we want to live as Jesus's people, but let's be honest, it's going to compete with what we've already been given. This, this competing picture of what we believe is successful. We, we've already been like hardwired toward competing and controlling and like being on the winning team and having strong stats at work and getting the right house and the right neighborhood and uh, getting to have a voice in everything and a strong desire to be seen and thought highly of and all these different things. Is this not what we value? Like that is totally what we value. That's totally what we value. That's totally what comes most natural to all of us. All of us tend to gravitate that way. That's what we think is successful. And I think this is why, before moving on to explain all the applications, all the scenarios that Jesus is gonna get into in these following weeks, before moving into all the places of how these Beatitudes are gonna hit real application, before doing any of that, Jesus takes kind of a time out to do a couple of things before he moves there. 
Jesus thinks it's really important. Before he gets really practical, really concrete, really specific, Jesus knows that we've been disordered and disillusioned about what matters. And Jesus presses three realities that we must get into us before we move on. Jesus wants to get the reality of who you are, why he came, and what true greatness is all about. So that's where we're gonna spend our time this morning. This is really just focusing on what Jesus's words are in this passage. He wants to remind you of who you are, why he came in the first place, and what true greatness is all about. So he kicks off this section, reminding us of uh, who we are. After giving his list of values for what it looks like to live in his new kingdom community, the very next thing he says The reality that he wants to get inside of you, he believes it's critical to remind you of something. What are the first two words that he says in verse 13? Okay, golly, not a hard question. What about the beginning of verse 14? You are, you are. He wants to remind you of who you are here and he's pressing it into us. If you are in Christ, Jesus wants to make sure that you're clear, that you are crystal clear that everything that he has laid out for you in the Beatitudes is actually who you are. That is who you are. And he engages our imaginations here by uh, pointing this out with two different metaphors, salt and light. So let's read those together. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, no doubt, if you grew up in church, you've heard this taught uh, dozens of times, right? Like there's several applications and implications we could take from what Jesus says here, but I'm only concerned with Jesus's primary point here because Jesus's primary point here isn't to take your saltiness and preserve like a, a decaying culture. That's not his primary point. His primary point here isn't to actively go and shine light in dark places. Sure, those implications are there. Being salt is that we will preserve uh, our culture and being light is that we will push back darkness. Those are the implications of being those things. And you see those implications in verse 16. However, we need to be mindful that these implications aren't why Jesus is bringing this up in the first point. Like Jesus is bringing this up to press something in about who we are. His main point here is not to try to motivate us to go share the gospel or to advance his kingdom. More than trying to stir us to go do something out there, he's trying to use these two symbols to show us our identity. That's his main point here. And you've got to get this in you before we move on. Here's his main point. If you are my disciples, if you are part of my kingdom community, then Jesus says, then it is in your nature to live out the values of my kingdom. That's his whole point with these metaphors. It is in your nature then to live out my values of my kingdom. Or to say it another way, if your life doesn't look like the portrait that I've laid out in the Beatitudes, then you're not one of my disciples. Right? Salt that isn't salty isn't salt. Light that doesn't shine, it's not light. That's Jesus's point. Jesus is saying, if you're not growing by my grace to be more poor in spirit and meek and more merciful and a peacemaker and even experiencing persecution for following me, then how can you call yourself a follower of me? If this is what a follower of me looks like and values and pursues and experiences, and if you aren't experiencing these things, then how on earth is it that you're saying that you're a disciple of mine? How is it that you're saying you're a disciple or a follower of mine? How can you call yourself salt Salt that isn't salty isn't salt. It's in the nature of salt to be salty. If it isn't salty, then it can't be salt. How can a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, which a disciple of Jesus is just someone who follows Jesus around because they wanna be with him. They wanna do the things he does. They want to become like him. Like disciples of Jesus follow him around 
to be with him, to become like him, to do the things he does. So how on earth is it that you can say that you're a disciple if you aren't becoming like him and doing the things that he did? Like it's pretty, it's pretty basic stuff that Jesus is trying to put in front of us. Jesus says, when my disciples are living out of the values of my kingdom in a dark world, they're like light bulbs turned on in a dark room. Like a shining light in darkness, that's who they are. Now put your eyes on the Beatitudes. Like if you've closed your Bibles, open them back up to page 809, Matthew 5, 2 through 11. Page 809. Hey, if you're a Christian, just put your eyes and scan the descriptors here. Put your eyes on the Beatitudes and just scan them. Jesus wants to say to you, this is who you are if you're in me. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is who you are. Jesus wants to get that in us because there is no middle ground here, right? But you can't sort of be salt. You can't kind of be light. Before he moves on in his sermon and gives details of how we live out his identity, he wants to get this clear that you can't just sort of be his disciple. You can't sort of be salt, right? You are or you are not. It is in the nature of a Christian in partnership with God's grace in our lives and growing in these values to grow them, to mature in them, to pursue, to uh, embrace them. That's who you are if you're in Christ. But this is not a list of what you are like to do to accomplish something. Like this isn't like a list of things to just like tick off a list to accomplish or to be or to get into something or to get in line about something. Well, if this isn't a list in order to be accepted by God, if this is just, if this is a list of what it looks like to live as accepted in his kingdom, then we should be asking, what must I do in order to enter his kingdom? Like, how do I become salt and light? And this is a good and right question and Jesus anticipates it, which is why he takes us to reorienting us to why he came. Look at um, verse 17. Now, before we jump into that, in the Old Testament, uh, it, it makes it abundantly clear that because of our sin, we're eternally separated from God's presence. However, most of the story of the Old Testament is one of this gracious, patient God who is moving toward his people, making provision over and over for sinful people to be near him. And he makes a covenant with his people and he gives his people the law. Now, you shouldn't think about law in terms of like arbitrary rules to just appease a God. You should think of law in terms of uh, God's character and his love written down. Like the heart of God, the character of God in words so that we can be near him and be close to his heart in loving relational covenant with him. But here Jesus hits the scene with his own list, his own list of values, and here in a little bit, a monster list of commands for us. And we shouldn't think, well, we've had this list given to us in the Old Testament, and now here's a new list of things we need to do. You know, Jesus doesn't hit the scene and go, well, what we tried before didn't really work. So we're gonna like take another, get another go at this. We're gonna try another round at this with some new rules and some new laws. That's not what Jesus is doing. He wants to make it abundantly clear to uh, correct that kind of wrong thinking and confusion. Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass away from the law until it's accomplished. So when we look at this like vast storyline of God's redemptive purposes, all of his purposes, all of his plans, his desires, his salvation and his judgments, all of these things, he didn't come to change those realities. He didn't come to like annul them or abolish them, even down to the smallest pinstroke. Do you catch that? the smallest little stroke in the Hebrew language that separated letters, Jesus says, I didn't come to remove anything that came before me. What did he come to do then? Verse 17, at the end of it, he's not doing away with them. Jesus says he's coming to fulfill them. So he's not minimizing what came before him. He's not removing it. He's saying, I'm coming to complete it, to fill it up. Think about fulfillment as like filling it up 
completing it. Like they were all pointing to him. How is he coming to fulfill them? There's three quick ways we can name, and I'm just gonna move through these at, a, as, at like a clip. The first one would be he's fulfilling them in the sense that he is fulfilling all the promises about him, about the Messiah, right? He was born by a virgin in Bethlehem. He came up out of Egypt. Like there's tons and thun, tons of promises made about Jesus and he ticked all the boxes. The second way is that all of the purpose and everything in the Old Testament, the, the stories, the, the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of the law was to make much of Jesus when he came. The whole point of everything was for Jesus to show up. And then the third way he fulfilled it was that he fulfilled the requirements of the law, right? He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. We were sinful and always fell short of doing it, but Jesus lived it perfectly where we don't. So Jesus um, is saying that all these things that I've done, all these things that I've done, um, and all the things that have come before me, I have completed perfectly. I've completed all of them through my life, death, and resurrection. This is the same argument that Paul makes in Galatians 3.10, that the promises of Abraham, which are older, have been fulfilled now in Christ, thus making and showing the old covenant to be what it always was, a temporary tutor, something that was to train us to look for a savior something that was supposed to train our hearts to see our need and our need for a savior who is Jesus. So success by the old law standards was by what you could earn, like how you could earn your way. But Jesus says, all of that is done now. I've completed it. I ticked all the boxes. I fulfilled all of them. I lived perfectly. It's done. I fulfilled everything. Place your faith in me above all of that and I'll show you a way toward greatness. Like no longer is greatness earning your way in your favor to get to me. We've got that. I've got that covered. Now live in my way. Live in my way. It's an invitation. Jesus wants to drive this point home here and now that he wants to reorient our understanding of greatness. He wants to reorient our understanding of greatness because it's not attached to what you do. Your greatness isn't attached to what you can earn or prove. He wants to reimagine our greatness in his kingdom. And we see that in verse 19. Look at verse 19. <coughs> Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, when you run the play of earning, it's a competition and only so many people make it to the podium. <clears throat> What's unbelievable about what Jesus just said here is, Jesus says here that greatness is opened up wide for anyone, anyone, anyone. He's already earned it and now he's sharing it with anyone who will take it. Jesus reimagines greatness in a way that no other institution, no movement, no political party, nothing does. <clears throat> Think about this. Jesus's kingdom and his value system is the only place in existence that's broad enough for anyone to be called great. Where else in the world can you be called great? Where else in the world can anyone come together and be called great? And I'm not talking about like the, you know, the little league, like everybody gets a trophy thing. Like that's not real. All the parents sit in the stands and go, he doesn't deserve a trophy. Like, no, I'm talking about real real deserving, like real greatness, greatness with like integrity behind it. This can only happen in God's kingdom because the gospel is a great leveler, right? Like how did you get into his kingdom? The gospel says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those who are haughty and high are brought low. Those who are low and feel like they're undeserving are brought up. Like God levels the playing field when you enter into, the, into his kingdom and it's no different living in his kingdom. It's no different living in this kingdom. And once you're in it, man, Jesus flattens the playing field for what it means to be great in his kingdom. 
Now, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to name uh, a mistake we could make here. Let me help you avoid a pitfall that you could hear this and maybe think about it wrongly. You might hear Jesus say that anyone can be great in his kingdom and mistakenly think that he's saying that everybody gets the same seat. That's not what he's saying. Like we love inclusion. Jesus is saying everyone is welcome into his family and everyone in his family can be great, but not everybody in his family plays the same role, right? Like not everyone is the same. You see, this isn't Jesus flattening the org chart here. You, you see this in our culture that we love the idea of everyone being called equal and trying to flatten everything, right? We wanna flatten everything to where everyone is the same. Yes, like, yes and amen that all people are inherent with invaluable worth because they're created in the image of God. Yes, of course that is true. But that doesn't mean that we all have an equal vote, an equal say, an equal role, the same gifts, the same tasks, the same impact. No, this isn't what Jesus is saying here. And you can prove this like super easy just by gazing at Jesus's leadership team, right? Like Jesus called 12 disciples to follow him and to be the founders of his church. But 70 disciples followed him around, right? 70 disciples followed him around and he chose only 12 to invest and to pour into. But from that group, he even pulled away three guys, Peter, James, and John, that he invested in. Peter, James, and John got to go in rooms that none of the tw uh, other nine got to go into, right? He saw, they saw someone get raised from the dead. They got personal instructions. They got personal uh, uh, unpacking of things that the other nine didn't get. They got to go up to the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see him change in his glory and see Moses and Elijah. They got to see all of this stuff that the other nine didn't get to see. And Jesus doesn't give a wink at it. Like God puts each of us in different tasks and in different assignments with different gifts and abilities. And he doesn't apologize for this. And he doesn't try to like accommodate around it. Like Jesus was incredibly uh, honoring of women. The women that he invested in and allowed near him, he even allowed Mary to be the first human to see him resurrect from the dead. But he didn't make her an apostle. He didn't bring her into his ring of disciples. Unbelievable. So why does he do this? Why does he do this? What's more important is like uh, to name uh, our dislike of this actually. Like you, you see the disciples kick against this and we kind of kick against this. Like we don't like this and it creates conflict among our church, right? Like each of us wants to be in the inner circle. Like we want to be in the know. We want to be on the inside. We want the extra information. We want our voices to be heard. We want to give input in, these, in all these things and it creates conflict. It creates conflict. Why is there so much conflict in the church? The root of conflict is envy. He has it, I want it. And even if I don't really want it, I at least don't want him to have it. That's, that's our disposition, every one of us, every one of us. And what does Jesus say about this? His disciples are bickering about, think about this, his 12 disciples that he chose out of the crowds. Everyone is viewing them as being in the inner circle and they're bickering about who's gonna be the greatest in his kingdom. You can never get into a, you know, you're always wanting to get to the next inner circle, right? They're bickering about who's gonna be the greatest in his kingdom. And what's Jesus say? Matthew 20, 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus was the perfect man. He was selfless. He emptied himself. But we wanna be autonomous and we're selfish. And to make things even more twisted, uh, we live in a time where we, we wanna make envy a virtue. Like Jesus tells the story of the workers in Matthew 20. This is a parable where Jesus, or this, uh, this boss goes around and hires workers at all different hours of the day to work in his field for a set amount of money. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. And what do you get from the response of the people that are working? Envy. Why are they getting paid what I got paid? What about this? What about that? All these different things. 
we take, and, then, and then when we read this story, man, we want to take the side of the people who've been working all day. It's like, dude, this sounds like a class action lawsuit kind of thing. Like this is, <clears throat> this guy has got it all wrong. Like we want to take the sides of those people. Nevertheless, the scriptures declare Proverbs thirteen forty, a sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Like what motivated Joseph's brothers to kill him and ultimately, like to want to kill him and ultimately sell him into slavery. Stephen tells us in Acts that they were moved by envy. They were envious of their father's love for him. They were envious of his gifts. They were envious of what God was doing over there and they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted it. See, we can spend our lives running around trying to like get in these positions and trying to get in all these good gifts and trying to take all these different things and looking at all these things that God has chosen to give to other people and wish that we were in their place, wish we were in the inner room and spend our lives like grasping at these vapors that we think are, are like success or what it would mean to have the good life or like to, to, to actually arrive. And maybe that's like for you, a position at work. Maybe it's like a, an actual inner room at work. Um, for others of us, it's like an opportunity to do something that makes us just feel more successful. That like in the watching eyes of our parents or our, our neighbors or our friends or our, our spouses or whatever, that we would feel like we're doing something that matters before the watching world. Like we can spend our lives here and be sorely, sorely disappointed because there's a great lie being told and the lie is everywhere that your greatness is in what you like say with your mouth, whether you make a big splash, whether your opinion is sought out, whether you're tapped on the shoulder and your voice might never be heard. And what if it isn't? Jesus here says you can be great there. Like that really needs to sink into us because that is the opposite of everything coming into our minds. Jesus says you can be great there. We're not given the same gifts, the same opportunities. And this is part of God's good design and plan for us. Like we don't have to fight and buck against this. Like, like we shouldn't complain, certainly. Yet all of us at times have this opportunity to be great in the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus say is great? He says, whoever is faithful to my commandments. That's what he's saying there. Before my eyes, are they faithful? and teaches others to do the same, he's gonna call you great. If you're faithful before his eyes to obey his commands and teaching others to do the same, you're great in the kingdom of God. Jesus is inviting everyone to participate in this kingdom and greatness by walking in and living out these beatitudes and helping others do the same, to carry on in their journey as well, to grow as well. And it doesn't matter how big your plate size is, it doesn't matter what your abilities are. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. It doesn't matter what you bring to the party. Like it doesn't matter at all. Like that's the whole point of the parable of the talents, right? Matthew 25, the point wasn't how many talents they were given or how much they made. Are you faithful before the eyes of what God has put before you? The guy given 10 talents, he had an ability to be great before the Lord. The guy given one talent, he had the opportunity to be great before the Lord. All of them did. Do you see what this means? Like dads, you feel the pressure of like providing and being more and doing more and making more of a comfortable life for your family. And this means you could be like, if you can be great before the Lord this way, this means though, if all goes awry and you're working like a dead end job somewhere and like nobody knows your name and nobody cares to know your name and you're working a job and it just feels like a grind, it's just, it's just punching the clock day in and day out. But you have set your heart to working before the Lord's eyes and being faithful there when no one else is looking and you're coming home and teaching your children to faithfully follow Jesus. The Lord Almighty looks down on you and says, you are great in my kingdom. Like you're great. You don't have to do all the other things. 
And moms, this means that every seemingly monotonous thing you do to bless and serve your children and husband, every time you have like repeatedly disciplined your children for whining over and over and over and training them, and every single moment you spend relying on his grace to pursue living his values, not perfectly, but faithfully pursuing them and cultivating them and aiming to give them to your children, the eyes of the Lord look down on you in that place. And he says that you are great in his kingdom. Like you are great in his kingdom. You can be great right there, unknown, devalued by our society and great in his kingdom. What about those of us who are younger, like 20 somethings, maybe early 30s. Man, this means that you do not have to spend your 20s and 30s trying to pursue something um, of like trying to somehow align all your ambitions, all your giftings, all your desires, all into one job. Like jumping around, trying to find something that matches all of your ambitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to find a great job that fits you. Nothing wrong with that. But this means you don't have to spend your 20s and 30s chasing the perfect job chasing the perfect experience or thinking about that you, like, that you need to kind of somehow do everything before you settle down. Like, you don't have to do that. In fact, right now, and I assure you of this, there's no better time and you'll never have more time to actually train yourself to put yourself before the Lord, asking him to cultivate things in your soul that like, when you add more things to your life, you'll wish you had that time again. Cultivate the deep things of God. Look at the Beatitudes. Look at where we're gonna go these next few weeks and ask God to train you in them now, that he would orient you toward them now and invite a few other people around you to do it with you. Like you may, you may not like be where you think you should be right now, but the Lord will say, if this is your heart posture, if that's like the place that you value, he'll look at that and say that that matters and that you're great in his kingdom, even at a young age. And then 50 plus, 60 plus. Hey, um, our church needs godly examples of what it looks like to finish strong. I was talking with one of our pastors the other day. We need godly examples of men and women who have walked and faithfully ran this race for decades and decades and finish strong. Meaning that you don't coast into retirement. You don't coast into retirement and like turn off. No, we need you going strong to the end and we need you opening your life up to us so that we can see it. Like we need you grabbing a few of us and opening your world up to us and showing us what it looks like to be faithful for decades. Um, man, we need, we need more of that. Okay, why do I run down a list like that? Like why do I run down like just a quick list of uh, a few groups, which I didn't hit I mean, we, could, we could name group after group after group and make some applications. Why do I do this? I run down this because I want us to reimagine <clears throat> how we define greatness in our church community. I want us to like use our imaginations on what do we think greatness even means? What does it look like? What is, what is valued here in our church community? Because how we define greatness as a church will define us as a church. I was wrong. <clears throat> hey, how we define greatness will define us as a church. That really, really matters because what's discouraged here? Like, what do we dislike? Or what's encouraged? What's validated among our community? What garners your praise here? What are you steering your peers and your friends toward? What are you steering them away from? What, what are you influencing here in our church family? What are you supporting that we pursue and embodying? Are the conversations and the encouragements and the challenges that we give ourselves to and give to one another, are they aligned with the things that God values? Like those things need realigned to him, the conversations, the side encouragements, the, the things that we make fun of, all those things contribute to define what we believe is greatness in our community and that will define our church, that will define our church. 
And here's the thing. I think if the Beatitudes aren't like in our guts as a community, if they're not like a deep value that we all share and have a hand in together as a uh, church community, then what Jesus says next in his sermon, like we're going to get into the deep, deep water here real quick. We're jumping into anger next week. We're getting into lust. We're we're not getting into lust. That was a weird way to say that. (laughs) I'll just be the first to say that was weird. Uh, We're going to talk about lust and what Jesus says about it. Uh, we're going to talk about divorce and all of us are going to get uncomfortable. Uh, Jesus has things to say about all of these things. And it won't, like, if, if, the, if these values aren't shared here and encouraged and uh, valued as, like, greatness in our community, then when we get into those waters, like, it won't be worth it to you. Like, the cost will be too high. Like, like you'll just go to an easier path, like a path of least resistance. I'll just settle for this level of success, not greatness. Like, can we be the kind of community that encourages us to pursue this? And I've got two ways that I want to encourage us to do that. I've got two real practical, quick ways that I just wanna like name and say, what if we did this together as a church family? The first one is remind one another of who we are. Like, I want us to just take up what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has done this. Why can't we join him in doing this? Like, remind one another of who we are. Like, when each of us are walking through difficulty or conflict or we're navigating something that's hard that we're walking through, what if you took your brother and sister and said, hey, don't forget, you are salt. Now, I knew when I would say that, it sounds kind of cheesy, and it does. Like, from the stage on a Sunday from a pastor saying that, hey, look at each other in the eye and tell them that they're salt. That sounds a little cheesy. But if I can draw from some of my own experience of when I'm in the heat of an argument or the heat of difficulty, or I'm struggling and I'm hurt and I'm face to face with my wife and we're going through something hard, I care way less about cheesy and I care about what's true and what's beautiful and what like really matters. So we say things to each other when we're in conflict that are like kind of cheesy if you just like read it on a piece of paper, but it matters and it's true and I want it and it ministers to me. What if we did that for one another? Where we were able to tell one another, hey, you are salt here, brother. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you? This is who you are. What would it look like for you to embody who you are in the Beatitudes in this situation? Like in this thing that you're walking through, this disruption in this relationship, if you are salt, what is required of you or what does it look like for you to embody this here? Like that's encouraging one another. That's reminding each other of who we are and encouraging us to grab hold of those things, even in the midst of difficulty, even at the cost that it will cost each one of us. And then I want us to encourage greatness. This is what Jesus does. I want us to join us, join him in doing this. When you see someone who's acting in line with what Jesus calls great, tell them that. Like go up to them and in their ear say, hey, what you're doing here matters before the eyes of the Lord. And God calls this great. God calls this great. Keep going. Like we don't encourage each other enough. Like there's a, there's a, a woman who... Um, comes two hours before our services and prays right over here. Nobody sees her every Sunday. Nobody sees her. Nobody knows her name. And she does it every year since I've ever been here. And I've been here for 14 years. Um, Nobody sees her. And what she's doing is great in the kingdom of God. And we need to be encouraging each other when nobody sees, when like you kind of get a whiff of like, this person is doing this over here. I see that. Encourage you, encourage one another. Name it as greatness in the kingdom of God. All right, let me pray for us and pray us into that. And we'll close. <clears throat> so Father God, um, would you cultivate that in us? It is what we want. It is what we desire. It's what we long for. Would you define us? by what you call us? Would you make our identity shine like a bright light? It can only shine like a bright light if it's truly a light. Would you make us salty? Would you make us who we are? 
Would you define us by what you say is beautiful and good and glorious and great? I pray that in your name, amen. This is only good news if, like what I said before, that Jesus came and accomplished everything that we couldn't do on our own. And that's exactly what he told his disciples when um, he was in the upper room. Jesus said that he's gonna lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. So when we come to the communion table this morning, Jesus says, you couldn't do enough, you couldn't be enough, you couldn't earn enough in order to be successful in my eyes. So I came all the way to you and I did everything that's required in order for you to be in right relationship with me. So that now when you come to the table, when you come to me, you just receive. You just, you just take what I give you, which is um, his presence and eternal life and forever with him. So that's what we celebrate when we come and take communion is that we don't bring anything to this table. He has set the table before us with his own life and with his own death. And by his resurrection, he says um, that he wants to raise you anew as well. So for all those who believe in that, put their trust in that, we welcome to come and take communion. The way you take communion here is tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The stone wears wine, the glass wears juice, and we have an allergy-free option over here to my right as well. For all those who don't put their faith in Jesus, who don't see this as their only hope, uh, maybe you're still wrestling with those things, we'd invite you to not come and take communion this morning because this actually means something. It actually speaks to something you believe. This isn't a, a ritual or something that you do to clean yourself up or a ritual that we just do week in and week out for for anything that's like purposeless. It is very purposeful and it speaks about your trust in Jesus. So man, if that's a question you have, we invite you to pray about that. We have prayers in our seat backs to help you like form words to pray to God and what it would look like to put your faith in Him. So um, why don't we go and have the servers come now and I'm gonna pray for us as we prepare for communion. So Jesus, uh, would you, even as we come now to come receive communion, um, would you stir us by your grace? Would you give us grateful hearts that want to commit to um, following you no matter what, obeying you no matter what? Um, thank you that by your grace, you've come all the way to rescue us so we can be near you. And for all those who are asking questions about what that looks like, God, I pray you would speak to them and minister them now at this time. I pray in your name, amen.